0: mother's favorite song a book by john william smith one of america's best storytellers in the world of swiftly moving traffic high demand careers and intense stress you need a source of refreshment and renewal for your faith sometimes to help you deepen your relationship with the savior and gain a firm hold on the wonderful promises of the father in the pages Of my mother's favorite song, you will find touching reminders of God's grace that comes alive in John Smith's warm, insightful stories of home. You will laugh as you read the story about Gertrude, the resurrected duck. You'll cry at the man who learned too late that his festering bitterness destroyed the one thing of great beauty in his life. You will feel the dull ache of guilt, and the soothing sense of forgiveness in the youthful tale of the neighborhood moochers. You will most certainly become more sensitive in your own life when you read the story about a pregnant wife, a promised picnic, and an unwise decision to go fishing. And through all of the stories, you will learn to live more closely to the Savior you love. Make time in your day for John William Smith, and no matter where you are, you'll find yourself closer to home. And the head football coach of the University of Alabama said Gene Stallings, he quoted, I love the book, my mother's favorite song. I love the fact that it reminds me of things that happened when I was a kid. This is a book that needs to be read and enjoyed. Here we go the introduction my mother's favorite song preface of making many books there is no end and much study is weariness to the flesh ecclesiastes 12:12 12, 12. again the bible quote is of making many books there is no end and much study is a weariness to the flesh the wise man Solomon was never more wise than when he wrote the words above. If he had foreseen the advent of computers and desktop publishing, which he had resulted in the incredible proliferation of books that have wearied, confused, and discouraged the average reader, I doubt he would have had the heart to write the book of Ecclesiastes. Everybody who is anybody and some who are nobodies yes, even people who can neither read, write, nor spell, have written a book. This is now my second attempt to write a book. I wrote the first book initially because I wanted to preserve something of myself and my childhood for my children and grandchildren. I wanted them to know who I was and what I believed. I wanted them to know who they were and something of their history, both the flesh and the faith. I have written this one because God gave me the gift and I felt compelled to do so. Writing has become therapeutic for me, sort of an ongoing introspective internal cleansing and examination that never reaches a culmination. One of the great problems I face as a writer is that I do not wish to be misunderstood or to unnecessarily offend. I go over and over every page, each line, each word, searching for a wetter way of expression. Every time I go over it, I change something. I also want to make sure that I have said exactly what I meant. If I say what I meant and cause offense, that does not bother me so much, but there is something I fear more than misunderstanding. Words are fragile things, easily broken and easily led astray. There is nothing I strive for more and have less hope of achieving than understanding. As I reach back and reproduce old scenes, I find myself in my writing and in my life that is not only inconsistent but contradictory. Writing has helped me understand Ralph Waldo Emerson's statement about foolish consistency, being the goblin of small minds. Foolish consistency being the hobgoblin of small minds. At times I feel I need to remove those contradictions to make a nearly wrapped, consistently progressive package with a warm beginning and a happy end. But my life was not, is not, and will never be a nice, neat, consistent package. Although I believe with all my heart that it will be have a happy ending, so I bring it to you as it was and as it is, full of ups and downs and inconsistency. This book is about life, love, happiness, sorrow, loneliness, death, and final victory. This bittersweet mix we call life is an experience shared by men and women the world over. The overall purpose of this book is to take you through a progression of experiences that are common to us all, ending with death and heaven. As you see the potential for ultimate joy in the midst of your own personal struggles, you can begin to understand how Jesus endured the cross. He endured it for the joy set before Him. This book is brutally honest in places, painfully honest in others. And it is in roots, it is the story of my life, my experience, my struggle, but in a broader sense, it is the story of every man and woman, for we all experience the same basic ingredients of life. I am terribly embarrassed and ashamed by much of it, somewhat satisfied with a little of it. If you haven't struggled with sin and doubt, if you have never been honest with your feelings, this book will probably make you uncomfortable at times if you're one of those special people who have never known the depths of depression who have lived from one sunny blissful day to the next this book will be totally incomprehensible to you there are things in this book that i would disclaim or apologize for in advance there is much to be misunderstood but that is the risk that all authors take If I offend, let it be because I believe too much and not because I believe too little. And so I bring you this book, Unfinished and Flawed. I hope you will read with grace in your heart and know that my intent is good. Even if my words seem at times to belie my heart. Belie, B-E-L-I-E. Preface. Introduction, my mother's favorite song. The idea for this book originated this way. On the morning of July the 6th in the year of our Lord, 1994, I woke up at daylight enthusiastically humming a song. Actually, it was a hymn. My wife, who was gently wrapped in a somnomalistic state of peaceful slumber, was rendered somewhat out of sorts by this unwanted interruption of her nocturnal bliss and reproached me severely for being so rudely awakened. She asked me quite abruptly and somewhat, I was going to say angrily, but my wife is never angry with me. Anger is a fault, and my wife has few, if any, of those personality deficiencies that might be described by the term fault. Perhaps I would say that she was indignant. Righteously indignant should be even more appropriate. She asked me if I had suffered a temporary impairment of my rational faculties. Or words to that effect. I believe her exact words were, Are you crazy? This startled me. No end because I had grown quite. ACCUSTOMED TO HER REFERRING TO ME AS LORD, AS SARAH REFERRED TO ABRAHAM. WHEN I HAD SUFFERED SUFFICIENTLY, RECOVERED MY COMPOSURE FROM THIS unprecedented AND UNWARRANTED ATTACK UPON NOT ONLY MY DIVINE RIGHT OF HEADSHIP, BUT MY INTELLECTUAL PROVENESS AS WELL. I ATTEMPTED TO EXPLAIN A SITUATION WHICH WAS NO SIMPLE TASK BECAUSE I DIDN'T UNDERSTAND IT MYSELF. Judy and I had spent the night at the home of our daughters-in-law's parents in Nashville, Tennessee. I have no idea why I should have awakened with this particular song running through my mind. I had not heard it or thought about it for at least 30 years or more. I know of no event that would have triggered that memory. In fact, if you had asked me prior to that morning if there were such a song, I honestly believe I would have had... Difficult remembering. It was a song that was sang occasionally at church when I was a child, but that is not where I really learned it. I learned it from my mother. It was her kitchen song. I don't remember ever hearing her sing it anywhere else. It was also her trouble song. When mother was trouble, she worked, and while she worked, canning, sewing, fixing dinner, cleaning, baking, or doing dishes, she sang. And the songs she sang gave meaning, hope, and purpose to her life. Whenever she and dad were getting along, when we were in financial trouble, or there were problems at church, when she was lonely or her fate was weakened, she sang this song. Since that morning, I have tried to piece together all the words and the melody she sang the words to. Actually, she sang two songs that have the same thought in them. I have since found both of the melodies and the words. As I remember, these are the words to the first song. When I come to the end of my journey, I will rest At the close of the day. And the toils of the road will seem nothing. When I've gone the last mile on the way. When I've gone the last mile of the way. I will rest at the close of the day. And I know there are joys that await me when I've gone the last of the way. When I've gone the last mile of the way. The second song went like this. The sands have been washed of the footprints of the stranger on Galilee shore. And the voice that subdue the rough billows will be heard in Judea no more. But the path of the lone Galilean with joy I will follow today. And the toils of the road will seem nothing when I get To the end of the way and the toils of the road will seem nothing when I get to the end of the way. I understand those songs and I understand why she sang them. I am grateful to God for the providence that brought them to my mind at this point in my life. The road of faith that I have trod has been a long and difficult one. I have been tried by the fire of constant frustration with human frailty, doubt, disappointment, pride, and the dreadfulness and drudgery of unrequited toil. A great solemn sadness pervades my life. I know I am a pilgrim and a stranger, an alien person who has here no permanent dwelling place. My hope is no less because of that. In fact, it is all the greater. I am a person who has been taken up his cross and is trying to follow Jesus. And even a very light cross is no fun. I carry the reminders of my battles, the scars on my soul that mark the events of my pilgrimage. I am looking for that city with foundations. I would not say that my life is void of happiness, but my happiness is no longer the dizzying happiness of thoughtless youth. It is the happiness I find in doing my duty. I do not say that my life has no joy, but it is an aching joy, and it goes far deeper than blue skies and rainbows, and is far better expressed in this song. with me and he tells me that I am his own and the joys we share as we tarry there none other has ever known. That song transports me into the very presence and heart of Jesus. In my conversations with him I experienced the meaning Of heartache, loneliness, pain, and sin. He tells me to bear my cross with patience, even patience with myself, and to let it teach me, as it taught him, the great lessons of obedience. Jesus knew from the beginning that he was to be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So he warned us that in the world you will have tribulation. Jesus went to the cross for the joy that was set before him. In his final words, he proclaimed victory over the forces that sought to defeat him by his trumpet declaration. It is finished. It is finished. So my mother and I joined with thousands of other redeemed in proclaiming our victory over the world by singing The toils of the road will seem nothing when I get to the end of the way. Let's try and sing that. The toils of the road will seem nothing when I get to the end of the way. Again. The toils of the road will seem nothing when I get to the end of the way. Making a believer, the guys I fished with always said I was lucky. I protested that there was no such thing, especially where fish were concerned. I was firmly convinced that my ability to always catch the biggest and the most fish was due to solely to my casting skills, my perseverance, and an uncanny inborn genetic sensitivity to what the fish were dining on on any particular day roger was a doubter like thomas he would not believe without some good heart incontroversible eyewitness type evidence and maybe not then we were fishing at lakeville north of rochester which is the name of a lake and its adjun town it was our third or fourth trip of the spring and each time I had caught the most and the largest Roger was steeped in unbelief absolutely hardened in his luck theory one of our favorite spots was a beautiful lily pad covered tree line cove with ancient willows grew the long slender branches of this towering tree arch high and then curved gracefully 40 feet out over and down to the water. It was an ideal place for lurking bass. There was a sort of natural opening between the branches of the tree on the east side. It wasn't very large, but through it, you could see right to the base of the tree. It was a real challenge. I told Roger that I was going to throw my plastic worm right through that opening, hit that base of the tree, and then slowly drag the lure into the water allowing it to sink down into the roots. I was sure there was a five-pound bass hiding there. He laughed. It was a very tricky cast, and I knew my reputation was on the line. I took careful aim, gauged the wind and the distance, and flipped the worm in a high arching curve. My direction was perfect. My distance, however, was something less than that. I became so intrigued watching that worm sail through the air that I forgot to thumb the line. I was shocked when the worm disappeared over the top of the willow and flopped into the water on the other side. Perfect, I said. Roger exploded with laughter. I immediately tried to retrieve my worm, but the line was hopelessly tangled in the tree limbs. As I worked frantically to extricate the snarled line, we would hear the plastic worm bouncing and splashing on the surface on the other side of the tree. Roger was about to die laughing. He set his pole aside and lay down in the bottom of the boat, holding his stomach while tears streamed down both cheeks. But when a huge bass exploded on the surface and devoured my plastic worm, he sat up and nearly choked. It was obvious what was going to happen. So I just relaxed. The strong but supple branches of the willow pl- played the fish perfectly. I waited until it was exhausted, then moved the boat around to this side nettle the fish, unhooked him, took out my scale, weighed it at five pounds, four ounces, and slipped it into the live well. I cut the worm and sinker off, went back to the other side of the tree, easily pulled the line back through the tree and moved across the cove to begin fishing again. Roger sat in dumb amazement during the entire operation. I thought old Roger was going to die of it. apoplexy, have a coronary or but burst. Sometimes as he tried to come up with a rational explanation for what was now obviously superior efficient acumen in order to make it easier for him and to show that I was not excessively proud, I carefully explained that I just as I released the cast, I realized that it was a later, little later in the day than I had first calculated and that consequently the bath would be feeding on the shady side of the tree. What he had witnessed was simply the result of a last-minute change of plan. I confess that I had made one mistake. I had honestly thought the fish would weigh no more than four pounds ten ounces. It grieves me to say that Roger lacked the simple honesty of Thomas who, when faced with the physical reality of the resurrection, he had the intellectual integrity to acknowledge that what was obviously true and cast doubt aside. Roger, faced with the indisputable evidence of my skill, remained a skeptic and quit fishing. He said that no intelligent person could possibly enjoy a sport with an orangutan would be more likely to succeed than a man. I wonder what he meant by that. Our vocabularies often betray our unbelief about God's active and practical innovation in our lives. Consider the nature of the typical words used to explain both our successes and failures. Planning, intelligence, perception, savvy, courage, luck, intuition, coincidence, chance, fate. Is there not a certain arrogance, paganism, and pride in these words? How large a role does God play in the affairs of men? The story of Joseph occupies much of the book of Genesis. It is an incredible story, a story that has more fairy godmothers Glass slippers, magic mirrors, and beanstalk than anything conceived or told since that time. It is a story that gives credit for every unbelievable coincidence, every preposterous bit of luck that comes Joseph's way as the specific, provisional intervention and intent of God. Are we to believe that the story of Joseph is an isolated case? told only to make us readers wish that they could be so lucky? Are we to believe that God has ceased his active involvement now that his creatures have achieved the sophistication necessary to guide themselves? Or is the story told to give hope and assurance to the providential working of God in the lives of his people? In John three twenty seven says, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. I wonder if we believe that. The new Song There I was Washing this tandem axle Twin screw cabover 18 wheel Peterbilt rig Went out from under November and December's accumulation Of Chicago's white salt Indiana's black dirt Oklahoma's red mud Blue gray Number two diesel smoke Mixed four to one with Kansas brown sand, there appeared the name, the Newsome Truck Line. It was startling how those words painted in curbside white in a royal blue metal flake base jumped out at me when the jet-like stream of scalding hot soapy water passed across the door of the Peterbilt. The Newsome Truck Line. Something about those words caught at my mind and wouldn't leave. It seemed I had to remember something or somebody, but I couldn't quite come up with who or what. I thought I had it when I remembered Bobo Newsome, a now forgotten relief pitcher for the Detroit Tigers, one of my father's favorite, but that wasn't it, just a name. I tried to give it up and went on with my work. I was washing the trailer and simultaneously admiring the fine spring day, warm and full of new life, when I slowly became aware that I was humming the melody of an old gospel song called, The New Song, that was it, that was it, it made me so happy, I could have danced, except I don't know how, fundamentalists like me don't go much for dancing, And besides, I had on some heavy rubber boots and a very cumbersome rubber suit, which would have seriously impeded my exhibition had I possessed that talent. So, with only a disinterested and totally unappreciative Peterbilt for an audience, I broke into a completely unrestrained, a cappella rendition of the song. I even remembered all three verses, and I was absolutely ecstatic with the boisterism, enthusiasm, and exhilaration expectancy raised in me by the spirit of it. And as the song proclaimed it, it did. Thrill my soul. As I sang the second stanza, a warm and precious thought came to me. The words of the song are, The greatest joy that I have ever known is praising him in song. I know someday when I have older grown, my voice will not be strong. For if good seed for Jesus I have sown, with angels all belong. They sing in heaven a new song of Moses and the Lamb. That part about getting older and losing my voice hit me hard. I thought, Lord, don't let me outlive my voice. What would life be to me if I couldn't sing? Then the the thought about my mom came. The last few years of her life had been very hard for her. She had had a light stroke and it had partially paralyzed her vocal cords. What had once been a strong, vibrant, alto voice had become gravely and raspy. I had watched her often, especially while I left singing, trying so hard to sing, trying to clear her throat, struggling to produce the old sounds of praise, but they wouldn't come. They would never come again. So she would slowly close her book and her eyes then folded her hands on top of her songbook. As she sat there trying to be content with listening, I think she drifted away to where she could hear it again, the way it used to be. Because I would see her smile and not her hair, head in approval. Mom really loved to sing, and our home was often filled with it. I have precious memories of her at the piano with Dad, Jerry, and I singing her favorite hymns. But Mom was gone. My song ended just as her life had ended. Very suddenly I didn't feel like singing anymore. A cloud passed over the bright sun and the soft spring wind that had warmed me turned chilly. I hurried back to my work so I could go home. Home! What a warm and wonderful sentiment that word aroused in me. I thought of the words of the song again. But if good seed for Jesus I have sown, with angels I'll belong. That part about belonging with angels could only mean one thing heaven. No more hunger, no more thirst, no more pain. No dying, no sickness. They sing in heaven a new song. Now it didn't take me too long to put two or three ideas together in a hurry. If there's no sickness in heaven, and if there's singing, a new song there, then my mom standing in the front row now. Praise God. Mom's got her voice back, and she's singing the new song. Praise God. God continues to find ways of reminding me of His gracious promises and of filling my heart with thanksgiving for precious memories, for promises are fulfilled and for the hope which is mine. When I come to the end of my journey, When I come to the end of my journey, end of story. Good morning let's go ahead and open this meeting with a moment of silence followed by the serenity prayer my name is fernando i'm over here in northern california parked by a town called antioch california where i made a lot of friends through the 12-step program you know brothers and sisters that have enlightened and enriched my life too as i hope i've done the same to them and the same thing in southern california where i have met one a lot of wonderful people if it wasn't thank god for alcohol alcohol and drugs if it wasn't for that uh those vices we would not have met we wouldn't have come together we wouldn't have uh, joined forces that uh, we have a problem and we're doing something about it you know you know the problem is a sea ocean of drugs and alcohol that it corrodes and eats up our our lives you know our very being, and we, we stay on the boat, and we got to keep each other uh, accountable, encourage, thumbs up, high fives, and this is this is the best life ever. And we have a couple of million, maybe three million, individuals around the world that are doing the same thing in boats. So that's encouraging. We have a, we used to have like a hundred and forty thousand meetings going on, excuse me, groups actual groups that were registered and probably over another hundred thousand and fifty a day groups that were meeting unofficially like in boats and cafes and you know there's a lot of groups that meet and for um, for, uh, for breakfast coffee and early morning all through the 12-step program you know just you know, it's just a wonderful thing when I, you know, to go into a place where you're not judged, there are no requirements for you, you can sense the country freedom, you know, it's just the flavor that is, oh man, this place is nice, because, you know, everybody is keeping judgment to themselves, keeping the advice to themselves, to the best of their ability, and we have a strength enough to tell them, I, I don't want anything you have if they're overbearing. Stand up for yourself, protect your ears and what you hear and who talks to you. I remember one time I I told the group, I said, you know, uh, if you don't want anything that I have, if I'm repeating myself over and over again, if I'm being, uh, let me know. As soon as I said that, one guy that I thought he was, he goes, I don't want anything you have, Fernando. And boom, punched me right in the nose. And I thought this guy was feeding on me, you know, like I was, and, you know, so have the guts to say that to a group, you know, have the guts, you know, if I'm being overbearing, if I'm being repeatedly keep saying the same thing over and over again, if I'm driving you away because my voice is, you know, you're sick of it, hearing the same things over and over again. You know, we guys that have been longer than 20 years, uh, even presently, must have outside interests. And the outside interest should be vocabulary, reading, reading books, using our imagination in other areas, or reading the Reader's Digest. I remember one time I got into a heated argument with my mother. I know that you, you had never done that, you know, because, you know, she was so into... uh, Uh, politics or problems of others or you know just one problem after another and I thought I said mom I can't stand this you know you need to read the reader's digest if you want me around if you want me to take you places I mean I I'm going down the street I'm doing a favor taking her to the doctor I want to pull over on the freeway and leave the car leave her there and run over the over the fence over the barbed wire fence, and just get away from her. That's how bad the negativity was. I remember one time we were going to uh, Mexico to go buy some medicine and sweet bread and go have some time. You know, we're driving down from Los Angeles. We're going to drive down to Tijuana, and we're at it. You know, I get—I had the same, uh, the same uh, problem in my heart. You know, I, I was addicted to arguing so we were at it so she was not alone she would activate my uh my addiction which was that you know it was uh our tree of vengeance would you say you know the root that has been pulled out and the fruit of uh, ugliness and we're both giving each other that fruit you know she's trying to cut me down and I'm trying to be the best of my ability that I'm doing this. I'm taking time to take her down there. I'm taking time to slow my mind down from all the reading and talk to her. I slowed it so down, down so much. One time she said, I just don't like to talk to stupid people in Spanish. And I, and it kind of like, I was like the foster farm chicken with my mouth open. I said, what? And uh, so I had to speed it up. So I get back at her, right? Well, I remember this time we were going down to Mexico. Like I said, finally it got so bad, I had to pull the car over and then I pulled out of the freeway and then I pulled here. I ended up in Old Town, San Diego and fuming. I went into a restaurant and we were sitting there and the waitress can tell that we were both, you know, fuming with acid in our heads and our minds and so forth. And she kindly gave us coffee, and we kindly, you know, and everything. And then she just started talking, and she did what we could not do for herself, what was God. She started suggesting, why don't you take a walk around this old town? You know, a lot of people come here from all over the world to take a look around. So we said a prayer, ate our breakfast, took a deep breath, thanked her, and then we went out the door. Instead of getting back in the car and going to Mexico, we did what she told us to do. We started walking through the little... Uh, shops and stuff, and we had an incredible And then she suggested that we go to SeaWorld. Well, we ended up in SeaWorld and um, never made it to Mexico. Got back really late, and I can. And my mom, I saw the little girl in her sitting. She, she had a, such a hard life with raising five kids from one country to another with a drunken husband and her trying to take the money so we can immigrate you know away from her taking beatings and so forth and uh you know i I was thankful that i was a dummy two things happened the little girl in here was explaining to my older sisters the beauty of shamu the beauty of uh sea world she was just amazed and we had such a great time at the at at uh the experience you know the uh the whales and everything and petting and seeing the dolphins. And uh, and the other thing happened is she started reading the Reader's Digest and she started giving me stories, you know. To this day, I remember them and I'd come and see her and she'd go, let me tell you about this. There's these fishermen that they have to fish so they use kites. They put their line on a kite and they fly it way out there and they put the kite, the kite, the wind has to be blowing the right direction of course and the kite the tail will lower for the fish it's got the bait on it you know and they and they fish through kites so you know what she started doing she started opening up my imagination in areas that I, while i was working while i was driving truck while i was making money i come home and she had all these articles read you know, she started telling me about therapy of, of dolphins in Florida and this and that. And so the dreams do come true. You know, people do have can take suggestions. We all can grow for the betterment. We all forgive ourselves, ask God for forgiveness, and we move forward. Boy, we never prayed, did we? Let's pray. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. My mom is in heaven now. She's with Jesus. And uh, I'm going to see her again. And we're going to be doing the same thing over and over again. Not the arguing, but the traveling and doing places and going places. It's not going to end, folks. Life is going to continue to be a, a marvelous, wonderful experience. Stay excited. Give thanks for your problems. Thank God for the alcohol. Read, read, read. Get in the habit of reading books. It's like going to the gym. Stay bright and hopeful. Read the good things. Don't read evil killings. Stay away from killing shows that uh, you're going to replay that in your life. Okay? You're going to replay that in your life. That's all I can tell you. I see it over and over again. Don't talk about people. Don't point fingers. You're going to lose your position with God if you do that. Just send blessings. Send blessings to the uglies. You know, like when the grass needs water, it's the same thing as a person that's ugly and talks about you and everything. and, And they're unsettling in their heart. Put water on it. Say, God bless that person over and over again. Don't let them contaminate you and make you a dry parch. Stay green and beautiful. I love you, man. Stay excited. Bye. Look at the birds. When I lived in San Antonio, Texas, I could not find a job. It was a humiliating time for me, because I had never been in that position before. My wife had secured a teaching position, which was very helpful financially, but increased my sense of failure immeasurably. It was a time for much introspection, soul-searching, and personal loneliness for me. It was also a time when I discovered that I had not made a much, as much progress in my quest to know God as I thought I had. In fact, I had taken a few steps backwards. Through the kindness and generosity of many dear people who love me, practically and with good hearts, I was helped to start a firewood business. I bought a chainsaw, a truck, and the necessary tools, was given a place to cut wood near Seguin and I began. I had never operated a chainsaw before in my life. It's amazing how quickly you can learn something when the need is upon you. I left the house at 3.30 in the morning and often did not return until long after dark because my need was great. I priced my wood modesty and I saw all I could cut. I was totally alone all day. The cheer, unrelenting, brute labor was good for me. I do not mean that I thought it was good for me at that time, I mean looking back it was good for me. At that time I felt very sorry for myself. I thought I was the only person in the world who had to work for a living, because I worked alone My bitterness and resentments were increased by my isolation. One very cold and overcast day, I was particularly depressed. I was tired, broke, far behind in filling my orders and frustrated with the cruel misfortunes of life, which seemed to mock at me. Here I was with a college education, cutting firewood. At one point my chain was dull when it struck a small rock that had lodged at the joint of a limb on the hickory tree I was cutting. I had just sharpened it, a very arduous and time-consuming task, and in in my already depressed, harried condition it was the last straw. I sat down on the stump of the tree I had just cut and my eyes began to fill with tears. Miles from any person, totally alone, I sat and cried. Eventually, I cried it out, and when I began to be restored, I noticed a very small bird, a wren, I think, perched on a limb almost within touching distance. It seemed totally unafraid and watched me with what I judged to be friendly curiosity. I spoke to it. I know that sounds dumb totally irrational, but I did. I was so alone that I needed to speak to something, and the bird was the only thing around. Hi, I said. It jumped quickly to a higher limb, but now farther away. It bounced and jerked so cheerfully and lightly that it made me laugh, a soft, gentle, inside kind of a laugh. What are you so happy about? Did you ever get lonely or depressed? I didn't expect an answer, but when it cocked its head to one side and looked at me with such an intelligent curiosity, I listened intently just for a moment in spite of myself. When I was a child, I might have expected an answer, and guided too, but not now. I'm far too old and wise for that. The little bird was company, and he lifted my spirits as I watched him or her I remember Jesus saying look at the birds are you not worth more than they the passage kept running through my mind like I was supposed to learn something from it it was like I was hearing it for the first time look at the bird Jesus said look 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 at the birds I began to realize that I never had just you know I had seen birds, I had hunted birds, I had shot birds, I had cleaned birds, cut up birds, cooked birds, eaten birds, I have even fed birds, but I never looked at them. God help me, I thought. God help me, and God forgive me for not looking at the birds. I have argued doctrine until the smallest gnat would not only strain up but dissect it. I have pondered the grace works tension until I nearly snapped. I have worried and and weird myself over women's role in the church and questions about authority until I was wretched because I thought God wanted me to and he does. But I had never looked at the birds because I thought that passage was symbolic or figurative or maybe unimportant. I had not learned the weightier matters of the law that bring balance, restore harmony, and cut loneliness. If I had spent more time looking at the birds, I would have been a better person. I would have known far more about loving God, my brethren, my enemies, my family, even myself, and I would have been less lonely Wrestling with millennialism and questions about the Holy Spirit is all right, I suppose, but it does not speak to the real issues of life. I do not at all mean that I should not wrestle with those things. I do mean that a person can cure his loneliness and learn more about his relationship to God by looking at the birds. Then he will be arguing doctrine. May God help us all to take him seriously when he tells us to look at the birds. Are you someone else's idiot? 1 Peter 2.23 says, When he was abused, he did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. 1 Peter 2.23 How did Jesus pull that off? I wondered. I think I know, but the answer condemns me. It was because he was totally without pride. That is why his life was sinless and mine is not. What follows is not an extraordinary event. I wish it were, but God knows it is far too common. What started the whole thing was that I forgot something I needed. I had fine-tuned my schedule to the point that the slightest hitch would begin a a late cycle. I drove into Sand's parking lot. I do not mean drove in the sense of calm, vehicular motion. I mean I drove in the sense of he drove a nail or halfback drove between two opposing linemen. Like I said, I drove into Sands parking lot, scattering people in every direction, ran inside, located the item I needed in seconds, and headed for the checkout. I measured each line carefully, appraising not just the length, but the individuals which ones would pay by check, who would question. Prices who wouldn't be able to find their driver's license. Suddenly, just to my left, they opened a new checkout line. Like the above-mentioned halfback, I reacted immediately, but I made physical contact with a rather bullish 45-ish linebacker type who rocked me back on my heels and filled the hole in in front of me. He only had three or four small items, So I stepped in behind him with only a minimum protest. As the girl ran up his purchases, he took out his checkbook. My heart sank a little. Being so close, I could see that his check was one of those temporary types, the kind they give you when you first open an account, and your real checks haven't been printed yet. You know, the ones with your name, address, phone number, social security, fingerprints, hair sample, and dental impressions. Which, by the way, it is totally useless unless you have at least three major credit cards can prove that you are in debt for a minimum of $250,000 and are on the first-name basis with the bank president. The checkout girl took one look at this guy's check and nearly had a coronary. We can't accept this check like this, she said rather indignantly. I'd like to know why the beep bitty, bleep beep Not I could tell by his reply that this guy wasn't going to take any stuff from anybody. This was a personal offense. I looked at my watch. I now was in deep trouble. The check doesn't have proper ID on it, she said firmly. I have all the kinds of ID. He opened his wallet and the cards stumbled out in profusion. I also noted that he had a rather large amount of cash his purchases were less than $30. Your personal ID doesn't matter. It's this check. There is no ID on the check. Now she was efficient businesslike. I'd like to see your boss right now. I buy lots of things here, and I am sure they don't want to lose me as a customer. She was not intimidated. Personally, I thought they would love to lose him as a customer. The boss came, and he verified what he... The checkout girl had said the customer wanted to see his boss. He wanted a personal interview with Sam Walton, his state senator, and Rush Limbaugh. The process was repeated, and I waited. This idiot wouldn't give up. He was in the limelight. Everybody was looking at him, and people who had checked out were standing and waiting to see the outcome. I was in a hurry. I wanted to strangle the guy. My resentment, my indignation... My sense of personal injustice grew to the bursting point. The other lines moved steadily. People who were still shopping when I got in line were now headed for the parking lot while I stood behind this self centered idiot. You are probably wondering why I didn't just change lines. I hope you are wondering that. It is my reason for writing. There are two reasons. The first, simply stated, is that I was too proud. I didn't want to lose face. People who had seen me jump in this line ahead of those who waited in the other lines would seem would sneer and see some kind of provincial justice administered against me. I wouldn't give them the satisfaction. Why would I make their day? The second, more pride. I was next in line here. If I move to another line, I will be fourth or fifth and I dreaded the thought that I might move. The conflict here would resolve, and I would be in another line, waiting, looking very foolishly. The idiot in front of me eventually made his point by returning his purchases and storming indignantly out of the store. When I finally left, I was seating. I was looking for any situation on which I could vent my wounded sense of fair play and vanity. Consequently, for the rest of the day, I treated anyone who got in my way unfairly. I was totally insensitive to anyone's needs but my own. I became their idiot. Instead of stopping the cycle, I increased it. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. First Peter 2.23 Beware of pride beware of becoming someone's idiot. Please take my umbrella. Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with action and in truth, First John 3.18. Please take my umbrella. Dear children, Let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. 1 John 3.18 It was right after class, and it was raining. I was standing just outside the doorway. But under the protection of the overhang to the entrance of my bee hall, I was looking wistfully at the rain and debating whether or not a dash to the student center for a cook was worth it. As I was pondering the deep theological problem, a young man addressed me from the crosswalk about 30 feet away. I couldn't understand him, so I just smiled and waved He changed directions and came toward me, his dark face peering out from under a rather tattered, much used worse for the wear umbrella. I couldn't help but notice his worn sneakers and ill-fitted trousers. He addressed me again, and although his English was broken, obviously a second language, I understood that he wished to loan me his umbrella. I didn't know him personally, but I knew that he must be one of several Nigerian students who were on our campus. Since I didn't really need to go anywhere, I indicated that I could get along all right without it. I could tell immediately that he was actually hurt by my refusal. I mean, he really wanted me to use his umbrella. I didn't want him to get wet just so I could go and get a coat. But seeing the look on his face and knowing how difficult it would be to explain, I asked how I could return it to him. In the room, let it be, he replied. After my class, I will come for it. He placed it in my hand with a look of genuine pleasure and without another word. He bounced out into the rain and ran lightly across the grass. Thank you very much, I shouted after him. He stopped and turned to wave, and his smile showed the enjoyment and goodwill he obviously felt. He warmed my heart. He acted as though I had just made his day. Although this happened many years ago, I still think about it. It left a lasting impression on me. One thing that occurs to me is that this young man noticed me. There were hundreds of students passing by, most with umbrellas. But this young man from Nigeria was the only man, the only one who offered. He was the only one who spoke. He was the only one who saw me. The rest had their heads down looking for puddles. Their minds were filled with thoughts about themselves, their classes, their tests, their ride home this weekend, keeping their shoes and their clothes dry, their grades, their problems, their love, interests, their popularity, their schedule. They were so full of themselves that there was no room in their consciousness for anyone else. This young man saw me because he was not thinking about himself. He was looking for me, not me specifically, you understand. But for someone like me, someone he could help, this young man left his room that morning thinking, this will be a good day to help somebody. The rest of us left our room thinking only about ourselves. I think about my own feeble attempts at generosity. I realize that the good things I do are seldom the result of planning, of thinking ahead about the needs of others. With me, it's more of an accident. Occasionally, I am so confounded, confronted with someone else's need that I am shaken from my own world long enough to respond. Even then, I am often half-hearted in extending my help. When I offer financial assistance to coach a little league team, a ride to the store to pick up someone's child from the dentist to clean up after a dinner, I wonder if I offer in such a way that my insincerity is apparent. When my help is rejected, am I relieved? When we offer to render assistance, it is obvious that we are simply trying to be mannerly, to show the outward form that is expected of us. If I can help in some way, let me know. Come and see us sometimes. Could I pay for this? These statements are not necessarily hypocritical, but they are often trite, meaningless, polite way of saying. Don't bother me unless it's an emergency. One other thing, sometimes I do the right thing naturally. It's not often. I'm afraid, but in the case of the umbrella, I praise God that I had the humiliation to allow this young man to help me. Don't let your ego stand in the way of someone else's pleasure. Dear children, let us know not love with words or tongue, but with action and in truth. 1 John 3.18 mm-hmm. all the girls before i get to what i want to talk about i have to make a confession confessions are not easy no matter what anybody says everybody has quirks and here and there and in their personality little rusty spots on their armor and i can't write this story without disclosing a quirk of my own so i might as well get on get it out in the open before you discover it It is said that honest confession is good for the soul. I know my soul will feel better after I tell you this. I only hope the rest of me will too. Once this secret is out, perhaps I'll be able to walk erect instead of slinking furtively around corners. Maybe I'll be able to look my fellow man in the eye instead of averting my gaze. I might even be able to go back to my old barber and finally stop eating at McDonald's and Wendy's. This may be worth it. Okay, here it goes. I like Willie Nelson. That's it. Don't look so dumbfounded. I don't know what you were expecting. I like Willie Nelson. And I hope you're not disappointed. Actually, it's not Willie Nelson personally that I like. I like some of his music. I listen to Willie Nelson deliberately. Yes, I have purchased his taste, his music. There, it is out. You may do which me as you wish. I cannot spend my life cringing and groveling like a weeping dog. Castigate me, ridicule me, give me the 40 lashes, trample my name in the dirt hound me to the ends of the earth but the truth is out willie sings this song with another guy whose name i cannot pronounce much less spell it it's called to all the girls i suppose i better add a disclaimer here there may be depending upon the listener some questionable insinuations in that song but I place it in my own historical context, and I get very nostalgic whenever I hear it. Since the song provided the inspiration for this essay, I wish to dedicate it to all the girls. First, to all the girls at Freed Hardman College who got up at 2 or 3 o'clock in the Sunday morning and made themselves beautiful for a ride of two or 300 miles to my preaching appointments. To all the girls who endure flat tires and mechanically broken down and who live in constant fear of running out of gasoline because I couldn't buy any until after I got paid for preaching. To all the girls who talked to keep me awake, who went long hours without food because I had no money to buy any, who helped me get up sermons on the way to church, who gave me insights and ideas that made the people at the churches where I preached think my Bible instructors were geniuses. To all the girls who sang alto or tenor in place where it had never been heard and who listened patiently and attentively to my bungled, garbled, juvenile sermons. To all the girls who patiently endured the ill-concealed matchmakers those willy old ladies who tried to marry me off on every occasion, who washed the dishes and tended the babies at the homes we are aiding, and who accommodated themselves in every conceivable way to every inconceivable circumstance, to all the girls who on the way home encouraged and uplifted, and who when deposited back to their dormitory after 20 hours of non-stop involvement, smiled and said that they had enjoyed the day and made me believe it. To all those girls, may God be as good to you as you were to me. Second, I wish to dedicate this essay to one very special girl. To the girl who, with a smile and a willing heart, became my wife. To the girl who soon, too, become a woman worn with care and disillusionment, who moved 17 miles in 15 years because of the brethren's intolerance or ambulance or her husband's stubbornness, pride, and stupidity, who tried to understand why she could not have a home like other wives. A place to build her nest, to care for and raise her babies, a place to fix and fuss over, It didn't have to be much, just hers, but it could not be who tried to make every temporary stop a home, a special place, and succeeded beyond any reasonable expectation. To the girl who never had a man to help get the kids ready for church, who sat attentively through a a thousand sermons, many she was hearing for the fourth and fifth time. With a child on her lap, and one on each side and a hundred pairs of eyes watching for a slip. To the girl, now a woman, who taught her children to read, who spent night after night alone while her husband saved the world. Who washed and ironed and cooked and even went to school to get a degree and work so her babies would never have to do without when her husband said the wrong thing and got fired to the girl who smiled through it all and never complained, who bore every added burden with courage and goodwill, who kept going when there was no reason, who bore with her husband's pride stubbornness, depression, and disillusionment, and who believed that God is love in spite of it all. When we speak of giants of faith and the courage of the prophets, we think always of man, but only God in heaven knows what this woman and 10,000 others have borne for his sake. just to be expected when you're 83 years old. He had been lying in the intensive care unit with more IVs, wires, hoses, lines, and monitor taped to his body and plugged into various holes in an automobile engine. He had been dimly aware that he was surrounded by his wife, and children, and friends who were grieving and praying. He had felt very tired. So he decided just to go to sleep. The next thing he knew, he was swimming, struggling to reach the bank of a great river whose powerful current threatened to carry him away. It was all he could do to stay afloat, but just when he had lost heart, it seemed that the current actually began helping him toward the bank. As he relaxed, he gradually became aware of the fact that the riverbank was lined with people who were yelling encouragement to him. He wished that they would come to his assistance or throw him a rope, but no one offered. At last his feet touched bottom as he staggered, stout wet up the bank. He was greeted by the defining cheers and applause of thousands of people. It was quite a reception, but after the initial greeting and celebration, he was somewhat surprised to find he hadn't changed much. He still walked with a limp, his back bothered him, his hair was thin and gray, and his digestion had not improved. It was obviously heaven, and he was enormously glad to be out of the hospital. But it certainly wasn't what he had expected. He was assigned a guide to sort of show him around and equate him with procedures. His name was Mike, short for Michael, and he was an exceedingly pleasant fellow. When Mike asked him what he wanted to do, He was totally at loss because he had no idea what his options were. He was pleasantly surprised when Mike suggested that he play golf. He had begun playing on earth when he was very young and had developed a passion for the game. Over the years he had honed his skills and for a period of time was a scratch golfer. With passing years, his skills had faded, but he had played well into his 70s before physical melody finally stopped him. Do you think I could? He asked tentatively. I'm sure of it, Mike replied. I didn't bring any equipment. Oh, we will supply all that. The course was breathtaking. Only an old golfer could really appreciate it. Beautiful curve, three-line fairways, perfectly level, manicured tee boxes, exquisite rolling greens, deep strategically located sand traps, and occasional crystal clear pools of water. He did notice that the holes seemed terribly short, even to his limited skills. He also noticed that there were no carp And when he asked about that, Mike explained that in heaven, everybody walked because all the lazy people were playing on a different course in a somewhat warmer climate. When he was handed his bag and his clothes, he was startled. His faith reflected his disappointment. They were exactly like the first set he had ever had, a discarded, unmatched assortment his mother had picked up at a garage sale. He took the driver out, the chrome shaft was pitted and rusty, the leather grip was worn smooth and fray at both ends, the head was weathered, cracked, even warped. I can't possibly play with these, haven't you got anything better he can play Of course you can, Mike responded enthusiastically. Let's get started. Aren't you going to play? Al asked. Well, I don't think so. Not today. There was something about his answer that made Al think it's best not to pursue it, it any further. He reached into the pocket of the bag looking for balls. He found one. It was an old Dunlop. The letters were nearly obliterated and it was yellow with age. It was scuffed and cut so deeply from abuse that the rubber whining showed through the gap. It couldn't possibly roll straight. Where are the other balls? That's it. You only get one but it lasts as long as you're here. Not much consolation in that, Alpha. thought. The guy who used to ball before me must have stayed a long time. But Mike was so cheerful and encouraging that he said nothing and determined to make the best of a bad show. What happens if I lose, I, he asked, almost hopefully that never happens here nothing is ever lost you'll understand after you've been here for a while he did not wish to appear ungrateful, and so with a heavy heart he began his first drive was so feeble that even on this short hole no more than a hundred yards it took him seven to get to the green lopsided ball was so unpredictable that he putted four times and took an eleven. He was nearly in tears. Hey, not bad, Mike said. The last guy took fifteen. Nell did not feel any better the next hole was about the same and the next and the next he gradually lost track of his score and the number of holes he had played he plodded along miserably disappointed and not a little confused gradually he lapsed into a sort of semi-conscious state of deep thought in which his immediate surroundings the sights and sounds and smells blended together and faded into the background it was like time passing but not the same he didn't really know when he first noticed it it was like walking after surgery or after a long deep drudge induced sleep his first conscious awareness that things were different came with the realization that he was playing better And that he felt, well, he felt different. He was enjoying himself in quick succession. He noticed that his drives were much longer, his chipping form had returned, and his putty touch was the best he could remember. And that's when he noticed that the ball was rolling straight and true. He examined it. Found that although it was definitely the same ball it also had improved. he also realized that he had not spoken to Mike for a long time somewhat embarrassed he asked how many hoes have we played oh five or six hundred I guess Mike responded as though that were nothing unusual five or six hundred Al was engaged how big is the course I really don't know I never seen it all the creation department handles that stuff the recreation department how long have I been playing we have no way of determining long as you mean it it simply isn't important all that matters is how much better you are how come the ball seems different Did you switch it on me? And my club, they're, uh, well, they're better. That's it. That's it, exactly. That's the word I wanted you to say. Mike was excited. It means you're growing, and I can begin explaining things to you. You see, in heaven, the Father has reversed what you experience on earth. I guess you also notice that you don't limp anymore, your back doesn't hurt, and you're feeling stronger. It's not because you're younger, it's because you're better. As long as you're here, you will improve. The more you use whatever is given you, the better it will become. While on Earth, you suppose that there was no time here? That it isn't exactly true. Time is sort of reversed here. On Earth, you knew time had passed because things broke down and decayed. Here, time does not measure what has passed or how close to the end you are. It does not tell you that you are late or what the boundaries of your expectations are. Here, time expands instead of contracting. Rather than limit, it creates endless possibilities. Time does not point to a conclusion, but to a new beginning. A place from which to grow. Today, you saw an old ball become new. A bag of useless clothes become objects of craftsmanship. Even in the simple things, endless possibilities for improvement yet remain. Can you imagine putting a ball into a hole that is exactly the same size as the ball on a green the size of a soccer field, which is covered with flower beds, shrubs, and running water? You have experienced within yourself a growing feeling of health and strength. In heaven, we always start everybody out with some simple, familiar activity because they can't understand how things work here until they're actually seeing the possibilities. What you experienced so far is the most simple and insignificant of heaven wonders. You can return and play whenever you want. We have holes here that are miles long with endless variations and hazards, but most folks don't come back very many times. They go on to more significant things. Now, in our music department, we have a piano that has 3,000 keys and 39 foot pedals. We have a trumpet that is 90 feet long and plays 400 octaves. We have an organ. End of story. Boy Blue, a reading from the book, My Mother's Favorite Song. Parent Love. It was 1968. We lived on Chevrolet Street in Flint, Michigan. I was in my last semester of the University of Michigan. Our two sons, Lincoln and Brendan, were about three and a half and nine months. I was sitting in my favorite recliner one evening, studying. Judy was cleaning up the kitchen. Brendan was in bed, and Lincoln was playing in his favorite place, underneath the studio grand piano, which occupied about one half of our living room. Lincoln's bedtime came, and Judy told him to go upstairs. He came to my chair and kissed me goodnight, and I watched him slowly climb the stairs, one at a time, on his hands and knees. He was wearing one of those light blue pajama type jumpsuits with the emergency flap on the backside. I remember how out of proportion the size of his bottom looked because of the diaper. After he had gone, I noticed that he had left his toys under the piano, a small steel dump truck three matchbox cards, some plastic army-type figures, and a small stuffed animal. I don't know why that inquisential incident should have left so deep an impression in my memory that I still recall it after all these years, except for perhaps for those two things. First, as I watched him go up the stairs, it occurred to me that this was a time to be treasured. Because I remember that he had been Brendan's age only days ago, it seemed also occurred to me that you can hold on to things. No matter how hard you try, and I saw a glimpse of the future. I mean, I became aware for a few moments of the importance of what I was doing and that awesome responsibility before me. My eyes filled with tears as I thought about how much I loved my son and what I wanted him to be. Second, I remember f- some snatches of a poem, a simple but lyrical rhyme that itched the moment forever in my memory. When you read it, you will see immediately why I associate it with this event and why I remembered it. I have since learned it all. It seems that the author of the poem went to look at a cottage that was for sale. The previous owner had closed it up after their small son died, and it remained as they had left it. As the author wandered through the long, empty house, he discovered some child's toys left in the seat of an old rocking chair, and he penned these words. The little toy dog is covered with dust, but sturdy and staunch he stands. And the little toy soldier is red with rust and his musket molds in his hands. Time was when the little toy dog was new and the soldier was passing fair. And that was the time when our little boy Blue kissed him and put them there. Now don't you go till I come, he said, and don't you make any noise. So toddling off to his trundle bed, he dreamed of the pretty toys. And as he was dreaming, an angel song awakened our little boy blue. Oh, the years are many, the years are long, but the little toy friends are true. Eh? Faithful to little boy blue, they stand each in the same old place, awaiting the touch of a little hand, the smile of a little face. And they wondered as waiting the long years through in the dust of that little chair. What has become of our little boy blue since he kissed them and put them there? This is by Eugene Field, little boy blue. As my son went up the stairs, it occurred to me how fragile life is, that neither he nor I might live through this night. I thought about my plans, realized once again how totally dependent I was on the grace, the providence, and the steadfast love of God. I knew that not even death could destroy my love for my son and i went to bed with a renewed faith in paul's statement that love abides because it is the greatest thing of all we know that love god's love the world and we have been told that god loves us personally and individually how does he love us how there is much about god's love that is infinitely deep and mysterious It is food for the philosophic meditations of sages and thinkers, but there is also that about God's love that is marvelous, lay beautiful and simple, though no less profound and mysterious, no simple that it is often missed. Although we have experienced it, we have not recognized it because we have not yet learned the meaning of the great truth. That we are made in his image. Kicking against the goads. Parent love. It was late February or early March. James and I were playing at the gravel pit. It was cold, windy, overcast day with a few flakes of snow flying. But we were having a great time. I had on my first pair of genuine boots. Rubber footwear that you could actually stick your foot right down into with no shoes on. And you didn't have to buckle them. They were black with red soles and a little too large for me. My mother had bought them at a sale, and neither size nor comfort was a major consideration. Even with two pairs of socks, I clumped in them considerably. They came almost to my knees and looked like firemen's boots. I was exceedingly proud of them. There was a little thin ice at the edge of the gravel pit, and we were breaking the ice by stomping on it and then splashing through the, through into the shallow water beneath it. I had been doing this for some time when I found a small pool covered with what we call rubber ice. It was not actual part of the gravel pit, but it was connected by a narrow neck of water. The ice would actually give with your weight and then spring back a sort of trampoline effect you can imagine what fun i had with it suddenly it gave way and i fell into some sandy water unlike any i had ever been in before i sank immediately over my boots up to my thighs terrified i began to struggle but simply could not extricate myself This produced a fear that resulted in absolute frenzy of effort to get out. The only noticeable result was that I was nearly up to my armpits within a minute or so. I did not know that I should remain calm. I simply wore myself out struggling. Finally, I had no energy left, and the absolute futility of further efforts overwhelmed me. James heard my cries and came to help me, but he quickly realized that he could be of no assistance. He stood completely helpless within 10 feet of me. As I grew more calm, I noticed that I wasn't sinking as fast. I told James to turn and get Elmer Russell. He was a well driller, and I knew he was home because I had spoken to him on my way to the gravel pit. When they returned a few minutes later, I had sunk past my armpits. I was numb from the effect of the freezing sand and water, and was quite concerned about my condition. Elmer had brought a rope and he got a circle it over my head and I grabbed it with his hand, my hands. Being an extremely powerful man, he pulled me out with relatively ease. Unfortunately, he pulled my right pulled me right out of my boots. It was about a mile or so to my house, but I ran all the way in my socks. I thought I would receive the whipping of a lifetime. If you have read my other book, My Mother Played the Piano, you will understand completely why I felt that way. But you know, the funniest thing happened. When my mother first saw me soaking wet, mud and sand right up to my ears, my boots gone, she was real upset. I tried to tell her what had happened, but it was a less than convincing story. Just about the time I finished my explanation, the phone rang, and it was Elmer Russell calling to see if I had gotten home alright. He talked to my mom for a long, while time. Then she hung up There were great tears in her eyes and she came and hugged me and kissed me. She helped me undress, got the wash tub heated some water and made me take a hot bath. It wasn't even Saturday. Gave us some hot tea and put me to bed, but I couldn't make any sense of it at all. When my father came home that evening, I thought sure I was gonna catch it good. For some reason, they went to their bedroom to talk, which was really unusual because normally when I mess up, they talk right in front of me so I would know what was coming. I guess I heard her say, Oh, Fred, Elmer told me that another five minutes and he would have been gone. We almost lost him. When my dad came out, he never said much, but I noticed that when we prayed at supper that night, He mentioned me several times and told God how grateful he was that he looked after me when he couldn't. On Sunday afternoon, he and I walked over to the gravel pit and I showed him the place. I guess he wanted to look for my boots, but they were nowhere in sight. He stood there by the little pond of water a long time and looked and again he didn't say much but I thought I noticed him wiping his eyes a time or two with the back of his hands. And I wondered about it because the wind was hardly blowing and it wasn't that cold. The lesson is, I know you see it, how the threat of loss makes all that we hold dear, more precious, how it removes the love in our hearts. God loves us, the Father grieves when he sees us struggling frantically to find meaning and purpose in our lives, yet always ending in greater lostness. How pleased he is to circle his great arms around us and rescue us from certain death. When he carries us home, he says with great concern to Jesus and the angelic host, you know, we almost lost him. P.S. Late that fall, I was playing in the gravel pit one Sunday afternoon with James. I told you I wasn't really bright as a youngster. Some might argue that age hasn't helped substantially. And we found out one of my boots sticking right out of the ground. I pulled it and it, it took it home, but it wasn't much good. I always wonder what happened to the other one. I knew you'd come, brother love. I heard the story from George Romney, then governor of Michigan, In 1955, when I was a junior in high school, he made a deep impression on me, and I have never forgotten it. It is a story about love. I have made up the name, but the rest of the story is told as I remember him telling it. In the great Ohio Valley, where the fertile black loamy hill soil produces the wheat, corn, potatoes, and other staples for the Staple of Detroit and Chicago. There is a small town called Steubenville. It is an old town 200 years ago, and before that, the area was settled by German immigrants who were dissatisfied with life in their native land. What they found, they liked. They cleared the land, they built their homes, they established towns, schools, churches. They had their families and they stayed. There is a very old family there named Hansen. It is said that there have always been Hansons in Steubenville. The Hansons are good citizens, close-knit, solid, dependable, courteous, loyal, and helpful. It is great tribute to the Hansons that whenever a Hanson son or daughter is sent to school every teacher and administrator is pleased by the prospect. Some years ago in the early 40s, actually Lutz Hanson and his wife Gwendolyn had two sons in successive years. In fact, they were born 11 months apart. One, the older, they named Travis, the other James, they had other children, older and eventually younger. But between these two, they developed a closeness, a relationship, a tie that even in a close-knit family was remarkable. They were inseparable. Blonde, sturdy, intelligent, both were good athletes and good students, and they were always together. They worked, played, even studied together. They were a year apart in school, but with his parents' permission and understanding, Travis stayed out his freshman year of high school so that he and James could play sports together and graduate together. Stories are still told of the way they blocked for each other in football. They passed to each other in basketball. Uh, Travis pitched and James caught in ball baseball how they always double dated and how the girls said it didn't matter which one you went with because you had a feeling that you were out with both of them when they graduated it was time for the Korean conflict they both registered for the draft and when inducted under the buddy system they went to basic training together and later were assigned to the same unit, same company. They arrived at the Yalu River north of Yule in January 1961 in time for a major offense. Normally they took their duties together, but one night James was assigned to a routine perimeter patrol designed to prevent enemy encroachment upon their position. The patrol was ambushed and only two members struggled to the camp to report the disaster. James did not come back. When word reached Travis, he went immediately to his commanding officer and requested permission to go and search for his brother. It was denied. The place of the ambush was assumed to be in enemy control and it would be suicide to send a rescue squad. Travis quietly explained his need to go, and even here in the cold, barren, forbidden setting, a commanding officer realized there was something unusual here, something not to be treated with normal rules. He also realized that the boy was going to go with or without permission. He finally said that although he could not grant permission, he would not prevent his leaving. Travis spoke for, to the two men who had made it back learned the location of the ambush, and set out. He was completely dark. It was completely dark. It was unbearably cold. It was a hopeless task. And even if found, his brother had little chances of being alive. All through the dark night he searched, and just as gray light he located the place. He moved quickly from one frozen, shattered body to another To him not him him not him and then he found him nearly frozen mortally wounded but alive he cradled the head of his dying brother in his lap and wept james opened unseen eyes and with the last of his strength whispered is that you travis yes i knew you'd come i've been waiting it was the last thing he said a short time later he died do things like that really happen does love that strong really exist? when governor romney told his story i believed it with all my heart i want badly to believe it now sometimes i need something like this to restore my faith in man's power to do good however Governor Romney didn't say whether or not these boys were religious. I always believed they were. James trusted his brother because of the love between them, because love always produces a covenant of trust. He waited because he knew that if the situation were reversed, he would come or die trying because of his absolute fate. Not just on his brother, but in the power of love itself. He found the strength, had the hope to stay alive, and to wait for him to come. We, must, we trust God because he has shown us and taught us his love. His love has created a covenant between us and him. We trust God because we know him and believe in him. We trust God because we know Him and believe that He loves us. We trust each other for the same reason, because of our absolute faith in God, unfailing, steadfast love. We find the patience and the courage in the hour of our greatest need to overcome this world and to wait for Him to come. When every other reason fails, love will find a way. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness, Lord. The Lord is my portion and my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 again the steadfast of the lord never ceases his mercies never come to an end they are new every morning great is your faithfulness the lord is my portion says my soul therefore i will hope in him is that you lord yes john i knew you'd come i've been waiting All right, now, thank you so much for listening in. May the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you, and be gracious unto you. Sleep well. Go to sleep. Bye now.